0: Today's episode of the BS podcast on the ringer podcast network brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Well, if you've been wondering what athletes have been doing on their hiatus, we're about to find out with JJ Reddick when he comes on in a second, some people in businesses, they're branching out there in this time, other places are doing what they've always done. Like our presenting sponsor, ZipRecruiter throughout all this, their mission has remained the same. They're still helping people find jobs and helping growing companies hire for their teams. By bringing together candidates who need employment and employers looking for great candidates, ZipRecruiter is committed to helping our workforce stay strong. Let's work together. ZipRecruiter.com slash work together. We're also brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network, where you can find new podcasts like The Watch, Press Box, Ringer NFL Show, JJ's Pod with Taylor Rooks, which she's going to talk about a little bit later, Binge Mode. Uh, the wire way down in the hole, is still going fairway rolling is back and, uh, and you can play fanduel.com slash ringer golf if you want to try to play against house. But, um, we're still cranking them out here coming up. JJ Reddick is going to talk about life during quarantine and what Orlando might be like. And then we're going to talk to Core Jefferson, who I've known for a while, who wrote for uh, the Watchmen. This season, a show that has become relevant yet again. So that is the podcast. Here is Pearl Jam. All right, JJ Reddick is here taping this. Uh, late Thursday afternoon, he hosts a podcast with Tommy Alter for the of podcast network, where they've had a lot of good guests during quarantine, especially I've been thinking about you because you're a man of routine. Yeah. Some people who are men of routine, uh, have not enjoyed the quarantine that much. You're a man of routine who also needs to practice his craft. What have
1: you been doing? What is your, what is your, what's
0: racing through your brain these last three and a half months?
1: I mean, I I guess I'm in the same boat as, as most people, um, you know, there's so much uncertainty, um, both in people's personal life and in the, in the world at large. I mean, it's just, there's, there's a general angst and anxiety, I think, hanging over everybody every, every day. And so for me, what's been really important is, is finding gym access and being able to go play basketball for an hour every day it's, I actually said this to the guy who's been working me out here in Brooklyn, but I said this to him today. I was like, I feel like I've gotten better in the three and a half months of quarantine. Like I've, I've worked my ass off in my, on my game. yeah. Um, and I've been conditioning. I've, I've ran a ton. Uh, since we came back to Brooklyn, I haven't ac- had access to a weight room. So a lot of the, the body stuff is just body weight stuff. But, um, I think there is no routine in quarantine, especially for me who has a 5-year-old and a 3-year-old. So the my only sort of like solitude and 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 sort of escape is that is that hour on the court just going super hard um you know playing basketball. How many guys
0: in the league are wired specifically like you because I think like Ray Allen before you was somebody who is similar in a lot of ways where it's just like you go to the gym, you have your routine. There was that famous video that time of Ray Allen in the dark with cheerleaders next to him, still yeah. doing like all the things he does. Like, is there a little club? Is there a text thread? How many <laughs> of these guys are there?
1: There's not a text thread. I feel like you, you recognize similar people. And then when you become teammates with guys who are like that, um, you instantly form a connection uh, you know, for, for me, like I'll give you an example, like Tobias and Jimmy, uh, with Philly were like two guys that just worked, you know, they loved being in the gym. They loved working on their craft. They loved trying to get better. Um, so that was, that was an easy way for me to connect with those guys. Um, and then, and then it's funny, I get text messages all the time from young guys in the league. And I get a lot of post-game interactions from young guys, They'll, you know, during the game, they'll be like, Hey man, can I chat with you after the game? And you know, they'll, I'll find them after the game and they'll ask me about a conditioning routine or my shooting routine or my off season workouts. I actually had a young player today, text me, asking me this, you know, all these questions about what my off seasons look like. Um, I think some guys have to figure it out. And then some guys I think are just like sort of wired that way. Like where I feel a sense that I, I actually feel guilty on days that I intentionally take off. Yeah. Like today, Bill, we had to push this podcast back because my car got towed. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And so my prior, so my car got towed. I walked downstairs to go to the gym and my car's gone. Now, now it was a little bit like, dude, where's my car? Like I'm trying in my brain to be like, all right, I, you know, I drove my kids back yesterday at 5 PM. Like where, where the heck could this car be? And my priority of course was I've got to get in the gym. So I've got to push Bill's podcast back because I will, I will beat myself up. I will feel a sense of guilt if I don't get my work in today.
0: Yeah. And I would have made you feel guilty if you didn't do the podcast. So (laughs) yeah, exactly. Either way. What are you expecting when the season actually comes back just from people's games? Like, have you heard there's, there's all this LA rumor right now, and I haven't been able to crack it of all the Lakers are playing at some rich guy's house and it's all like, you know, nobody talk yeah. about this. And, yeah. But have you heard about like different rumors and what teams are doing and all that? Are you expecting people to show up out of shape? What, what do you, what do you think?
1: All right. So in regards to the Lakers, I've heard similar things. Obviously nothing has been posted on social media, supplying us with the evidence that we need, but there is a gentleman. I think his house is in Bel Air. Yes. Who has a, like a Staples center replica in his backyard. Yes. It's a full court locker rooms, weight room, steam shower, whatever you want. I've, I've worked out there before. My assumption is those guys are working out there. That would, that would make a lot of sense. Um, I about. And and now. he gets, and
0: he gets great stories for his friends at cocktail parties. Like <laughs> no doubt a year and a, a year and a half from now,
1: like, <laughs> no hey, doubt. Just FYI. Remember the quarantine?
0: Yeah, So that's what's I,
1: in it for him, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, but look, I never played for the Lakers. And like, you know, you've seen videos of like a couple summers ago, Chandler Parsons was in there a bunch. Um, John Wall's been in there. Like guys, guys if they're in LA, that's, that's one of the gyms that we can have access to as players. Right. Um, so I actually said this to someone uh, about a month into quarantine when all these guys were saying, like, I haven't touched a basketball. And I, I've been in two different locations. So the first location I was in, I had access to two different gyms. I got kicked out of two, by the way, I should say that I got kicked out of two, Or like turned out like, no, <laughs> we can't, we can't. But then I had two yeah. and then I, I, I came back to Brooklyn and like, I finagled my way into access to three gyms. So like, if one gym says you can't use it today, I've got two, uh, two backups. So all these guys saying they don't have access to a gym. I just, I call bullshit. Like you don't want to be in the gym. Yeah, I, I, I'm i being serious. Like, right.
0: You can't get in at six o'clock you, in the morning. You don't, anytime. You
1: don't want to be in the gym. And yes, right. some of it is like, I'm not following social distancing rules, but I'm going in. No one's touching me. I've got access, like my own personal access. I've got my basketball trainer who I've been with the whole time. And a lot of guys have their personal trainers who they've been with the whole time who can rebound for them. It's it's an excuse. I don't buy it. So you your
0: basketball trainer, that's almost like you have, you've crossed the line, like almost with your kids and your wife where <laughs> they, he's throwing you the ball back. You're not, he's not wearing like gloves and a hazmat suit. Oh like no, you. we like,
1: we lice yeah. all the, We lice all everything before and after yeah. the workout, hand sanitize, all that stuff. We wear masks into and out of the gym. Like we're, we're, we're serious with it, you know, but obviously there's that period of time where we're each touching a basketball, but I guess what is different between what we're doing? Cause obviously we're communicating every day. All right, you know, have you had a contact? Have you had contact? Have you? Do you have any symptoms? I check my temperature every day per the Pelicans. I have to send in my temperature every day. So we're doing all these things, but what's the difference between us doing that and, you know, guys at a practice facility? Um, right. Going in and seeing a trainer and them doing the same thing with the balls and disinfecting everything. It's the same thing. There's no difference. Was there a point where you felt like the season might not happen? Yeah, for sure. I think most of April and May, I felt initially, and, and and maybe you've talked about this on the pod, so I don't, I don't want you to repeat, uh, to your listeners, but, uh, the first two weeks, it was like, what the fuck is going on? Like, what, like, is this because for, for them to shut down sports, for them to shut down 90% of the industry industries in the USA, lockdown cities, I mean, it was surreal. It was scary. And so you're trying to figure that out. You're not even thinking really about the NBA. You're like, is my family safe or my parents safe? You're thinking about those things. Then it gets into like week four and, you know, the numbers are still not looking good. And you're just doing the math about like, it takes this many weeks to do the playoff. And you're like, if we don't have a decision here in the next couple of weeks, you know, we're not going to have a season. I got scared the week before. LeBron and Chris and those
0: guys finally had that phone call because I was like, Yeah, you know, I was doing the math, and I remember talking about the pod. It was like, if this doesn't start going now, that this can't happen because now you're deep in going against football, and then you wouldn't be able to start the season until after, and all these things. It just didn't seem realistic. So, I, I you know, it does seem like the history of the league is always the superstars get the ball rolling, no matter what it is, whether <laughs> right. it's a union or anything. Right. Um, and the superstars got the ball rolling, um, and then last week, did I mean I don't you haven't really talked about in your pod that much that the all the stuff last week about all of a sudden now and there's a whole players union call, eighty people on it, yeah. and Kyrie wondering is this a good idea? Like I actually thought that was really healthy that everybody was having those conversations. Were you concerned at that point that that might undermine it?
1: Yeah, so I actually we released a pod today with Taylor Rooks from Bleacher Report. And we talked about it with Taylor and I just kind of shared, you know, I don't know everything. Obviously I wasn't on the first call, which was Tuesday. There was about 50 players from what I understand on that call. I got the notes from that call. And then I was on the call Friday night. And so leading into the call Friday night, you know, Chelsea, my wife and I, we, we had been talking and I was like, look, this thing, this thing might, might not actually happen. Um, and then I was on the call Friday and that call actually gave me sort of an affirmation that the season was going to happen. We have a lot of things to figure out, um, yeah. both as a league and in our society. Um, and I'm hopeful that we can all, we can all work together to, to like create real change. And, and my understanding, my understanding is that the NBPA and the league ownership, obviously like we all sort of want the same thing here, the players, everybody wants the same thing. Um, and so it's, it's really about keeping open lines of communication so that we can really put some policies in place and really invest in some, some, uh, some areas where we can, we can change some things. And it does seem like if you use the platform correctly, it will be the most powerful
0: way to get a whole bunch of things done. And if they can figure out all that stuff in the right
1: ways, it's going to work. I, I, I've said this privately. I don't know if I talked about it the other day. Like I have, I have zero problem with a guy saying he doesn't want to play for any of the reasons that are out there, whether it's COVID, whether it's being away from their family for two months, or whether it's this uh, social justice movement. I don't have a problem with any of it. If you don't want to play, if you're not comfortable playing, I get it. This is not what we signed up for. Yep. These circumstances are not normal to play NBA basketball. So I get all of it. Um, my my I, I, One of my concerns... With not playing in general is if we do not play, and we we we're, obviously that would be a huge statement from our players. It would be a, it would be a topic of conversation for a number of weeks, but as you start getting into September and October and November, the conversation is going to be about football. In late August, if they still have it, the the Republican National Convention.
0: And then people going
1: back to school, maybe people going back to school, maybe a second wave. And then the election, the election is going to eat up 80% of media coverage in the fall. So if we, if we don't play, there's, there's a chance we've missed a real opportunity. Taylor Rook said something on my podcast. It's not just about wearing a t-shirt though. It's not just about doing something during the national anthem or saying something in a post-game interview. We really have to work with the NBPA and the league on, on figuring out actionable things that we can do to help. That's what it comes down to. We have to do something beyond just tweeting and talking and wearing t-shirts. Not going to, not going to be enough. Well, now that they've finished the 133 page guidebook
0: that was like the size of Lord of the Rings and they know we're at the hotels. Congrats on being at the yacht
1: club, by the way. Um, I, 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 I don't want to brag. I don't want to brag. Corner suite. I've been breaking news on my podcast. Okay. (laughs) It was like three weeks ago. I, I spelled it out on my podcast, what the formula was going to be. This is like eight days before they voted. I spelled it out. And then, and then I think, uh, I think it was the, maybe it was the Pat Connaughton podcast. I, Gave the three hotels we were staying at. I knew the three hotels, which didn't come from the PA either. That was from another source. I'm breaking news on my podcast, Bill. That's all I want to say. That's it's all a, I want JJ, to say. a JJ bomb. <laughs>
0: but now that we have all this stuff settled and everybody knows, all right, here's what's happening. Here's when the, we have the whole schedule, all that stuff. Yeah. Now it seems like they could spend the next couple of weeks figuring out, all right, how are we going to use the platform?
1: Yeah. What are What are
0: the five things we want to achieve here?
1: Yeah. I think what's, What's unique about everyone being in Orlando at the same time is even when we have our NBPA meetings, whether it's at All-Star break or the summer meetings, the turnout is not always great. You're never going to have this amount of NBA players in one place at one time. There's a real opportunity to have conversations, to come forward with a coherent, cohesive plan, to present. And and get get actionable items on the table that we can actually do. And, and to me, that's that's a huge opportunity, because doing conference calls or tweeting or DMing or texting, like it, it, I don't know that it gets it done if it, if it's face to face and in person. And by the way, uh, on every conference call, uh, Shams is on it, so there's. There's media members on it. I mean, he's he's pretending he's it. a small forward. I mean, something. I literally got off that call and I'm like, this mother, he's, he's verbatim, Bill. Right. Verbatim. I said to Chelsea, like, I'm looking in the corner of my screen right now and it says recording and, like, the call is getting recorded. Like, y- you know, yeah. it's, I don't know. Shams. He figured it out. He's using,
0: <laughs> he's probably assuming somebody else's identity. Yeah. I think, uh. I think they'll be able to figure out a lot of stuff in the lead up to when you guys get there. One thing that fascinated me, though, the Patrick Beverly tweet about Mm. if King James says we hooping, we hooping, however he phrased it. And I was like, I wonder how many players in the history of the league had that kind of sway that another player would would say that like, hey, if he says we're playing, we're playing because obviously Jordan would have been like that. I think Kobe hit a point you were in the league by then in the late two thousands when I think he yeah. had a steam like that. Um, I think magic and bird together and magic by himself. I think were like that other than that, not really, but do you feel that way? Like ultimately LeBron is going to decide what happens here.
1: Yeah. I look, you have to, you have to consider the fact that there are so many players at different stages of their career. And so if you look at the young guys, um, maybe they need the money. Maybe they just want to play. Maybe they're trying to prove themselves. Maybe they're trying to get into rhythm. Maybe they're trying to set themselves up for the next contract. Like a lot of these guys, they want to play. That's not to take away from the fact that they are all about the social justice movement, but they're maybe a little more motivated to play. If an older player says we're going to play or we want to play, they're going to follow that. I remember, you know, during the lockout being on some of those calls, and when KG would talk or Kobe would talk or Paul Paul Pierce would talk, like their words certainly carried a lot of weight to me. Yeah. And and framed sort of my own thinking for sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Plus the guys hit a point where most of the guys in the league grew up watching
0: them. Which I'm sure is a weird dynamic for LeBron in general, right? A lot of times he's yeah. competing so that's was, against.
1: That's what I was gonna ask you about. As a as a historian of the game, I think there's a There's like a level of respect for LeBron. Like everybody wants to compete against them and wants to beat them, but there's a level of respect and not just as a basketball player. I mean, the guys off the court has just been a monster, a monster. He's done it right. And there's a level of respect for him going back, let's say, 2000s, 90s, 80s. Do you think that there's that level of respect or is there a little bit of hatred and jealousy? Cause I don't sense that from players towards not maybe from the, from fans, but there's not that sense of jealousy or hatred towards LeBron that maybe there was for superstars back in the day. So it's interesting. One thing he's
0: in terms of terms of service, I think he's like one of the three oldest players in the league just for careers, right? He's been in the league since Oh three all the guys from that class, except for Carmelo are gone. And I I think, so he's just been around for two decades. Um, he has more natural rivals than I feel like anybody who was the undisputed best guy of his era has ever had. Like there's been all these different moments where, you know, Curry was a back-to-back MVP. Durant went toe to toe. Durant, yeah, Durant. Two straight finals and, and outplayed him. And then you go back to 2010, 11 range, like Dirk outplayed him in a series. So I don't, I I think the respect comes from the total package more than the, that guy kicks our ass. Cause do you like, do you really think Kawhi doesn't think it, whether it's true or not? Kawhi goes to sleep at night thinking I'm the best player in the league. It might not be true, but I don't think he feels like LeBron's better than him. So I think that's the difference with that. You agree with that or not? What? No.
1: I I don't disagree. I think a lot of players go to bed saying I'm the best player in the league. Whether it's rational or not. Yeah. I mean, or guys are like, Hey, I'm I'm top five. I'm top five. Motherfucker, you're like top 75. You saw right. the, the the Chuck quote during the last dance. I mean, that's you can't get to a certain point without some level of irrational confidence. You just can't. Yeah. Um, but I the, the thing with LeBron is he's had so let's just take away his rookie year. He's basically had a 16 year prime. Yeah. Like there's now there's varying degrees of his prime, but for relative to most 99% of players, his prime has been longer, I would argue, than maybe anyone in NBA history.
0: Well, you think so. The night, remember the 1984 slam dunk contest? They brought it back and Dr. J was in it It as like the old man because he had won in 1976. Like, oh, the old man, Dr. J. He's like two years younger than LeBron in that dunk contest, <laughs> yeah. and it's oh man, the old guy. Like when I was growing up, I went to a Havice- check was our guy in Boston in the seventies. In his last game, and he had played sixteen years. It was like the most anyone had ever played. Yeah. It's like oh my god, sixteen years. How'd he do it? You know, and, and LeBron yeah. is might play twenty five. I, I mean, we've talked before about just the advancements you guys have. Like the even during a quarantine, the ability of somebody to diet correctly sleep correctly train do stuff do yeah. go on youtube and find core exercises all these things they didn't have in the 70s and 80s but i do feel like he's figured out how to maximize his body in a way that other than maybe carl malone i don't ever remember seeing in the league where he's just yeah he, he he the punishment he takes being able to play 8 9 months a year like think about your guy zion like for him to ultimately reach his potential, he's going to have to treat his body the way LeBron did really from about 2008, you know, where yeah, it's there's just gotta like, be,
1: no, there's gotta be complete buy-in like, and, and I, I said this to Joel after last summer, I, um, I went to his, uh, apartment, uh, right after the season. And again, I, we, Joel and I've talked about this publicly, so this is not, it's not something yeah, do, yeah. but I, I went to his apartment after the season and I, I, basically said to him, like, Joe, like you're, you know, when you're healthy and you're in shape and you, you're, you're all that stuff, like you're, you're a top five, top 10 player. Your, your prime could be three to five years. Your prime could be 15 years. It's up to you, you know? And so there's got to be that, that whole, that holistic, buy. it's a holistic buy-in. It's not yeah. just, I'm going to go work on my game. It's not, I'm going to work on my game. I'm going to work on my body. I'm going to eat right. I'm going to sleep right. Like I, I learned it. I learned it my junior year of college and obviously when you're 20 at the time, when I'm 20, it's not necessarily a lifestyle, but you start developing these habits and then by the time you're like 24, 25, like it's just your lifestyle. Like you, you go to the gym and you, you work on your body and you work on your game and you eat right. And you're, you're worried about your sleep and you're worried about what you put in your body all the time. It's all the time. It's constantly, um, I don't know how many guys really do that, but when you have someone as talented as LeBron and he does it, you and see, he does the, it
0: and he does it the best. That, and right? he does it the best.
1: Yeah. You see the result of that. You see the result of that. And you know what? CP and I've talked a bunch about this too. Cause CP has made a, like a huge change over the last few years and he's always worked hard. I, no one's ever questioned his work ethic, but just like really understanding what he's doing. And he's, I mean, I, Bill, I remember reading you when you used to write for uh, ESPN and back in like 2011, when Chris had his knee injury and you saying like, Oh, Chris, Chris looks like he's limping. He he looks looks like he's playing on one leg. Like there's no way this guy's going to last. And like him and I are basically the same age. Like he, he he was an all-star this year at 35. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. I thought, I never thought he was in great shape. When I would go to the
0: Clipper games, I didn't think he was in bad shape, but right. I, de- I definitely thought in the beginning of the year, he would play himself into shape, stuff like that. I thought he, I thought he was moving as well as I've ever seen him move <laughs> at Oklahoma city. I, <laughs> yeah, you know, and he yeah. clearly, you know, he's talked about it, like plant-based diet, all that stuff. I remember Paul Pierce, who we almost made the finals with him in O2. I say, we like I'm on the team.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, And then he was a little choppy, had some issues. Ricky Davis joined the team. That was that guy, a little dicey. And he had a bad year and they lost to the Pacers in a game seven. And it was kind of, it was kind of a fork in the road moment for him. And I think he saw it and he came back the next year and he was awesome. And from that point on, he started really working on his body. And then KG comes and KG is like this force of nature. Yeah. And then now everybody, you know, there's no other way you can't. Yeah. You can't not work if he's on your team. So Pierce was able to buy this little extra piece of his prime that I don't think, I don't think it would have happened otherwise. I just think he would have had the same kind of career most guys have, you know?
1: Yeah, if you never change, you lose out. You lose out on three or four years, absolutely. You Iverson, lose out on three. Iverson's a good example. Iverson was yeah. was
0: done in '08. He came yeah. in the league in '96. It was yeah. it was done by the time he got to Detroit. So yeah, it's, I th- so I look at Zion and I'm like. If Zion and Embiid are the two guys where if you could just do a fantasy draft and be like, what two guys do I hope learn from LeBron? Because yeah. it will be fucking awesome to watch them for 20 years. I think those would be the two guys.
1: I would agree with that. I would agree with
0: that. What's the, What's been your impression of Zion, by the way? I, I don't think we've talked about it on the pod. You got to spend a year with him.
1: Yeah, so my first impression of him is I've never met. It, well, it's 19 when I first started, you know, hooping with him, but I've never met a 19 or 20 year old who's that famous and that famous from such a young age who was so level headed. Right. Like he's not an asshole. He did, there's nothing, doesn't have a big head. Um, it's a great teammate. Um, I, I think that the biggest thing for him, and you just kind of touched on this, is like hit, hit him just learning to develop the right habits. Um, but I have no doubt that he's going to do that. I have no doubt that. And I, I, going back to Joe, I have no doubt that Joe will. And you saw this thing the other day where he says, like I've been in the gym six days a week for the last last four months. It's great. I like My hope is that Joel can do that for the next 10, 15 years and just be a first ballot hall of famer and win championships. Like that's my hope for Joe. That's my hope for Zion. Um, you know, I, Bill, I, I think a lot about my own career when I think about these guys, because part yeah. of me is like a little jealous. I feel like I've, I've, for the most part, I've maximized my career and I want these guys. Cause like, if these guys maximize their career, they've got everything. They've yeah. Got, they've got things that I could never achieve. They've got things I could never achieve and they'll achieve some of those things, no doubt. But if they really buy in their first ballot hall of famers, their multiple, you know, NB all NBA, multiple MVPs like Joel should win MVP. I have no doubt he should for sure. I hope he, as a Celtics
0: fan, I hope he never totally takes it seriously. I hope he gets like <laughs> 85% there, not a hundred. It's, it's funny. Like, so you come in the league in 06, we redrafted your draft, by the way, you, you went way yeah. higher than you did in the actual draft. Uh, we did, What, 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 what pick did I
1: end up going? What pick I think did I you went like
0: fourth. I took you early. I think I jumped on you early. Cause I was like, wow. I make it 20 <laughs> years of JJ, Dude, 2026. <laughs> you might still be playing. Um, but I think one thing about your generation is the internet and the 24, seven talk cycle has probably positively affected a lot of these guys. Whereas in the nineties and the eighties, you know, hearing negative feedback, that's actually true and actually hits home, but it's not wrong. I think it's the opposite for writers. I think the internet and social media is social media is the worst thing that ever happened to writers, but in basketball, if Joel Embiid is hearing like, Hey, part of the reason the Celtics beat you in 2018 earmuffs, don't sorry. I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. Part of the reason we beat you is cause you were huffing and puffing in game, you know, you weren't totally yeah. in shape yet. And you have Barkley and Shaq talking about Joel's got to take it more seriously. Like those are hall of famers who don't believe in your work ethic yet. That has to help him. Just has to.
1: Yeah. I don't disagree with that. I, I, I would, I would spin it in sort of another way. So okay. I, with the way social media works. And that everything's out there and the way, uh, our league works and that everybody copies everybody else. Uh, if somebody has a, has a basketball trainer, hey, I need to get a basketball trainer. I might work with the same guy. Actually, he had a pretty good year last year. If yeah. somebody's got a personal trainer, hey, I see this guy working. I like what they're doing. I'm going to, I'm going to go. People didn't ha- there was no exchange of information amongst players when I got in True. the league. That was 14 years. I don't even I can't even imagine what it was like in the 90s or 80s about all this stuff. So social media has put all the good stuff out there as well. And guys want to do what other guys are doing. And I think that's a big reason why you're going to see a lot of these players and my generation included who are going to play pretty damn good basketball. Maybe not prime basketball, but pretty damn good basketball well into their late 30s. The only thing that worries
0: me is just all the studies about the AAU generation and all the miles that these guys have on them by the time they yeah. get in the league. Cause even you're, you, I guess you were a borderline AAU generation, right? But you weren't playing like five basketball games at a weekend, were you? Or did they have that by the, when you were in high oh, school? Yeah. They oh, yeah. they had all that already? Yeah. When did that, when did that
1: start? Oh man. I So maybe I, that's good. So I you're, knew it, you're I doing knew it, all, it right. all through high school. I knew it all through yeah. high school. So I started, so I was. I was 14. I just finished my freshman season. I was 14. Boo Williams, who was on the other side of the state, he had a big AAU program, Iverson, Alonzo Morning, Joe Smith, um, Ronald Curry. He asked me to play with his 17s. So I did did three summers with Boo, and we would start playing tournaments in April, and we would finish in September. Oh, so there goes that theory. We would usually only play one tournament in August, but the entire month of July, we were somewhere... June was always like USA basketball camp, five-star camp, uh, Nike camp right around July one. And then you'd go to Orlando and you'd go to peach jam and there was a tournament in Staten Island. There was a tournament in Portland. So we would play, yeah, three months. And yeah, you'd be like, I joked with Andre Iguodala last year, but like we, we played them in the national championship. My last year playing AU, play them in the national championship, 17 and under. He played for the Illinois warriors. And I think it was like our 11th game in six days. It was our, Oh my God. The national semifinals were at 8 AM. The national championship was at 11 AM. Like we, we just, we just would play, play, play. You go play, play, play. And I, I shot like four for 18. Part of that was, he was a really good defender, but also, I mean, by that time of the tournament, I was just gassed. I had nothing left. Nothing. left. That's that's stupid. I mean, you know,
0: we don't have a sports czar. We have nobody overseeing (laughs) any of this stuff. And this is like a classic reason why you need a sports star. It's like, Hey, this is a bad idea. 11 games in six days,
1: Bill, this is going to happen though. There will be someone who's going to do this. I actually have a buddy who's, who's pretty involved in these sorts of things. He's he's involved with actually overtime, but this is like his big pa- passion project right now. He's doing it with a couple other people. They're trying to find the right person to oversee this, but we, we need to actually look out for these kids. We actually, we have to look out for these kids. We're We're doing them a disservice for sure. My daughter's soccer team,
0: they, our coach is like pretty diligent about, because you could have these tournaments where you play eight games in four days or, you know, like just, you're, you're just doing double headers and it's like 90 degrees. You're in like Las (laughs) Vegas. And and we had a couple of those when she was 10 or 11 and like the second game, like, it's like, is my kid going to keel over? Is this... Is it, how is this hope? Everyone's just kind of wobbling around like a maniac. Are you yeah. speaking of kids? Are you bringing your kids? What's going on? What's the plan? Orlando? Are they? Is everyone coming?
1: Well, they can't come. I mean, they can come if we make it to the conference semifinals. No family. That's the, so that's the only. So only No. Not, so once there's eight teams left of the 22 conference semifinals, that's when family can come. So I, I'm yeah I'm leaving uh, next week and. You know, I'm, I'm looking at, uh, two months without my family. It's, um, do you guys have a
0: chance you're behind, right? You're a few games. Yeah, are you like three behind three and a half?
1: Yeah. So we, so, so we, we have a chance. I, I haven't seen our schedule yet. I mean, they're algorithming it right now, based on your next eight games of teams available to play, but I think we, we definitely have a chance. I mean, I would love to make the playoffs for sure. Um, well, yeah, you have a little streak at stake. I, I wasn't going to bring it up. No, come on. It I told like no. Lou Gehrig. <laughs> <laughs> I, I told I told my guys on our team and I was like, look, I was like. We were talking about whether we wanted to play and all the all the stuff that went into it. And I said, my playoff streak in this in my decision about whether I want to play or not play is completely insignificant like in the right. scheme of the world it's very insignificant. I have other motivations of why I think we should play that is so far down the line. I mean, I and I told him like I could I could do the next 2 months with my kids swimming in a swimming pool in the Hamptons or I could be right. sequestered at uh the yacht club in Orlando, Florida in 102 degree heat with 100% humidity, you know, basically with all dudes playing basketball. Like I I'd probably rather be with my kids. <laughs> But that was a big thing we said was, you know, if we, and I know Dame came out publicly and said this too, was look, if we are going to, if you're going to put us in a, in this, in this bubble, we want a chance to be able to actually feasibly make the playoffs. If you give us that chance, Hey, we're all for playing. And then Aldridge was like, I'm getting surgery. I'll see you guys later.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's really acted up. Got to talk to the doctor. I, uh, every year there's one team that for a variety of reasons, the first 55 games underachieved injury, usually injuries. Yeah. And then in the last 20, 25, you're like, oh man, it'd be fun if they were in the playoffs. And it was so monitoring you guys client. I remember texting you a couple of times like, oh man, look at this. Yeah, It would be fun to have you in because I thought at full power, you were clearly one of the eight best teams. I would
1: so, agree with that. I would agree with um, that. When we're, when we were all healthy, I think we're, I think we're one of the eight best teams now. Look, the way this schedule shakes out and the the rule with you got to be within four games uh, of the eighth seed, like we have a lot of work to do. And I think the interesting thing about Memphis is everybody's just kind of underestimated them uh, throughout the season. And then they just kind of like they just hovered around 500. They never really hit a point where they broke. You know, there's obviously Portland, San Antonio, SAC, Phoenix, the every, all these teams in the mix, the Memphis gonna, thing killed me because yeah. we
0: have their, we have their pick.
1: Oh and It's yeah. like, really, That's
0: really, right. you guys are, you guys are going to have a winning record this year. We're <laughs> <laughs> sitting on this pick for seven years. I forgot John about Morant's, that. It's like good immediately.
1: I forgot about so, that.
0: Who was the best team you played this year, by the way?
1: The best team. Yeah, <sighs> man. Um, I, I would say, I mean, I would say it's, it's Milwaukee Lakers Clippers. Those three, I mean. I, I I the the team I love, by the way, the team I love is Toronto. Mm. I love Toronto. I love their team. I love the way they play. Um Great I just coach. Yeah, I love it. I love it. It's
0: amazing that they were able to shrug off the Kawhi thing and kind of patch his numbers together and still do their thing. And then the Lowry well,
2: yeah, they know, had ta- they had injuries
1: too. Yeah. They had a bunch of injuries. They just kept winning. Yeah.
0: I'm excited to see my team again. I really, I miss my guys. It was really getting attached Tatum Brown, Marcus smart. Oh, we had Kemba all of a sudden, then it, then it's over. All right. Um, we can listen to your pod. Are you, what's your podcast schedule going to be? People are asking, but once we get toward the season, you have to shut it down. No,
1: absolutely not. Okay. Absolutely not. So we'll, Zoom
0: we'll, Zoom's been good for you. It's, Zoom's,
1: it's- Zoom's been super easy. It's super easy. It's super easy to get on somebody on a Zoom call. Um I so we have we're doing a recording next week with uh Win Butler from Arcade Fire. Uh he's become a buddy of mine. He lives down in yep. New Orleans. We've been trying to get him on the pod. So he'll probably be the last one we do before we get down to the bubble. I may do one in New Orleans during that little 10-14 day period where we're we're not practicing, but we're practicing. I'm not sure what what's happening. And then, um, yeah, I'll, it, the podcast is going to be all behind the scenes stuff. Uh, we'll have some players on from other teams, um, and it's you know we we've actually recorded a ton of episodes, and I think they've all been really relevant. And and um, lately, we've we've done a bunch of stuff like with Jamal and Malcolm, and and today with Taylor Rooks, where we're talking about the issues going on right now and it's just important to hear from them i, I mean that's the biggest thing they they have such good perspective on things and um i've actually learned a lot just in listening to those those three guests
0: the other thing we forgot to mention about uh orlando is it's going to be Tamper palooza 2020 <laughs> all these dudes together all these potential free agents or
1: a year from now free i can't yeah. even imagine what's going to happen it's going to be wild i'm bringing there, my st- i bring my sticks down there i'm 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 gonna play some golf, and so I'm I'm wondering who else is gonna who else is gonna bring their their clubs down, and 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 will there be some action on the course? I well, really curry w- Curry Curry's will good, bring him Curry for sure. But Iguodala he's not Curry's not coming. Oh yeah, you're right. Iguodala's
0: coming though. Iguodala, um Curry might come anyway for the golf if he knows Willie, he's gambling on Willie Green
1: golf. Willie Green will will bring him, although he's a you know he's with Phoenix <laughs> as an assistant. I just don't know many dudes that play golf anymore. Like it's not a thing. When I got in the league, everybody played golf. Really? Yeah. I, I probably, thought like probably half my team in Orlando played golf. Half. I would say I would I know one other dude on my team in new Orleans that plays golf. Frank well, Jackson, which,
0: which guys on Orlando played golf.
1: Arroyo. Uh, Pat Garrity. Pat Garrity. Um, I
0: should have guessed that one.
1: Jameer I played. can totally
0: see him out there. Not Dwight.
1: No, Dwight didn't play. Not Dwight.
0: Can't imagine him out there. I, <laughs> I can imagine the, the foursome behind him getting annoyed because Dwight's on the on the green, like, not leaving and messing around with the flag or something. And then them just
1: hitting into him. I'd have a hard time believing that Dwight could take golf seriously. I have a real <laughs> hard time believing that. <laughs> Uh, All right. JJ,
0: good to see you. Good luck. Uh, good luck in Orlando. Good luck with the fam.
1: All right. Thanks, Bill. All
0: right. We're going to talk to Corey Jefferson in a second. First, Whoop, a fitness wearable that provides personalized data and insights on how recovered you are, how much sleep you're getting, how much stress you're putting on your body over the course of your day, whether you're active, whether you're trying to improve your health, it will help you build smarter habits. It will keep track of your training, sleep, and recovery data. And one of the coolest things is the strain coach, which gives you target exertion goals based on your recovery, takes the guesswork out of your training, shows your progress live, alerts you when you've hit your workout goal. Also, and this is my favorite part. And and my wife is actually pretty annoying with this. The sleep coach looks at your sleep needs, suggests a target bedtime to allow your body to properly recover. I like seeing what kind of REM I got. I give great REM. I am at least two plus hours every day. My wife varies, but my REM is always better than her. So I got a little bragging rights in my family. It's really cool to know what's going on in your body every day. Whoop is offering my listeners 15% off right now with the code Simmons at checkout, go to whoop.com w h o o p.com and her Simmons at checkout to save 15% sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, optimize your performance with whoop today. All right, without further ado, here's Cord Jefferson. All right, Cord Jefferson is here. He is rocking one of the best quarantine beards I've seen. Wow. I don't even know how to describe it. You said you've,
2: you've had friends compare it to...
0: James Harden. A uh, little Prince early Jesus. James Harden?
2: Yeah, that's what a friend told me. Yeah, but this is, you know, it, it's getting pretty long. I was not expecting it to be this long. I think that if I keep it going, I could do maybe Frederick Douglass for Halloween. <laughs> that's maybe a <the> new goal. <laughs> it's it's impressive. I wish I could
0: grow one. Mine just like grows out of my neck. It just makes it look, eventually it just swallows up my chin. <laughs> um, we've known each other for a while through mutual friends. Yeah. And I, wa- I want to start with The Watchman, but then go into your whole journey. Because I, I think one of the things that's interesting about you is I just know knew about you. And at one point I was like, "Cord's moving to LA. He's going to take a, a shot at TV. And it it's your whole journey is really cool. So I, I want to save that for later, but the okay. watchman, um, which is about six, seven months out of when the season finale was. And then all the stuff that's happened in the country, the last few weeks. Yeah. Um, what, what, what is our perspective now in that show and how it ties into, um, to where we are in 2020 as somebody who works on it and who can look at it objectively, but was also so intrinsically involved in the actual show.
2: Yeah, I, I think that, so I've had a lot of people recently reaching out to me, friends and stuff, saying, like, it's crazy how prescient Watchmen feels. Like, it's insane that that was seven months ago, and it feels like you guys predicted so much. And I I, I say that I think history is prescient, that, that when you're writing about black people in America, and you're writing about black history, um, and you're writing about police violence, and you're writing about white supremacist violence you can kind of set your watch to the fact that that's probably going to happen again in America. And so I think that, um, yeah, I don't think that we were pressing. I don't think that we predicted the future. We didn't have some crystal ball in the writer's room. It's just, we were talking about history though. In American history, um, history is prescient. Like the, the things that you, the things that you, um, you know, uh, the things that we were touching on are just things that have been, uh, complaints from like my, my parents and my grandparents and my great grandparents and then issues that, people have been dealing with as long as there were black people in this country so um it is you know the mask stuff is crazy like like i'll I'll admit that that's a that's a crazy coincidence but as far as the 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 sort of themes of the show um i think that a lot of them just just exist because we're in america
0: the mask thing i don't even coincidence is not even a good enough word um yeah it's wild you know, we ran Victor Luckerson wrote a piece for the ringer two years ago about Tulsa and I took AP history in high school. I was a political science person in, in, in college. It was a bit, that was my major. felt like I knew a lot of stuff. I I'm kind of embarrassed by how little I know about some of the stuff. And that was a perfect example. That piece it was like, oh, I'd kind of heard of that. And then you read that piece you're like, oh my God, I didn't do it. know anything. Um it would seem like one outcome potentially from this year is going to be people really doubling and tripling down on the history of some of this stuff and, and how important it is. Um, yeah. did you know, did you know the Tulsa story like intimately before you even worked for that show
2: or before like Victor wrote about any of that stuff? I didn't know about it intimately by any means, but I definitely knew about it. I'd heard about it. I, I remember, um, hearing about it sometime in my childhood. Um, and not that not that I studied it deeply I I certainly probably didn't I I grew up in Tucson Arizona and Tucson isn't great on sort of like civil rights education or anything so I I, I would likely not have uh heard about it in school but you know um because Tucson was a, a pretty sort of a pretty sheltered environment as far as it comes to diversity um my my parents tried to make sure that I was uh steeped in a lot of black history at home so uh you know, there was a lot of movies and TV and documentaries and books about black history um, in America. So I came across it sometime then, but I hadn't really, it wasn't something that I paid a lot of attention to until we were in the writer's room and Damon said he wanted it. He wanted to uh, use it somewhere in the season. It took a few weeks, I think for us to decide that it was going to be the opening of the pilot, but uh, Damon came in and said he wanted that to be, wanted that to be a focal point of the season. And I, you know, I didn't realize how few people had known about it until the next day, and a friend sent me, a friend sent me one of those Google trends graphs, and just like how, like the overnight from Sunday, at like 10 p.m. when the right. episode aired to like Monday morning, how how much the, the the Google searches had spiked for Tulsa massacre was insane. Was it
0: weird working on this show knowing that it might be a one and done? That no. there's one story you're telling, and then. That that could be it. There is there is because most TV shows now they're trying to keep it going for as many seasons as they possibly can. I I
2: think he probably learned from Lost.
0: Maybe <laughs> you don't think that way. Just do your best season.
2: Right? Exactly, I, exactly. Like I think that, I mean, there's so much content now. There's so many TV shows. There's, I think that, I mean, you're now seeing six episode seasons. fleabags is doing a six episode season, just like basically a three hour movie. Um, yeah. You're seeing like pe- people do. Eight-episode seasons, nine episodes. I mean, Watchmen was nine, an odd number. Um, I think that people... I'm ready. I'm excited for a time in which people just do that. People just pull the plug when they feel like it's time to pull the plug. I worked on The Good Place also. And I came onto that show in season two. And I remember Mike Schur saying in season two, like, I think this is a four-season show. He knew from sort of basically... The first day that I started working on there, that he didn't want to drag it out to eight, nine, ten seasons. He just wanted to make four seasons of a show and say what he needed to say and be done with it. I think that, you know, I don't want to name names, but I think we can all probably name a television show that probably should have ended a couple, two, three seasons earlier than it did because it felt like by the time you get to the end, by the time they actually go off the air, you're sort of scraping the bottom of the barrel. Um, and I think that it's it's great for people to start deciding to pack it up when they, when they feel like they want to pack it up instead of being canceled or just dragging it out for the money.
0: Yeah, it's funny. TV shows are almost like athletes. They have to have that one season where they don't have it anymore to realize they shouldn't have it anymore. It's funny because <laughs> exactly. I know Mike, obviously, and his favorite show ever is Cheers. Yeah. Cheers is a show that easily could have ended after season five when Diane left. Yeah. like It had a natural out. And then they kind of reinvented a show and it became like a real true sitcom. Yeah. But the first, especially the first three years, the reason it's still one of my four or five favorite shows ever is it wasn't a sitcom. It was a show that was funny, mm-hmm. you know, and it was really human and they would go in some stretches, like two, three minutes without a laugh. And so it reinvented itself. And it's almost like there's two separate cheers in my mind, yeah. but I'm with you. Like it, it's really rare for a TV show to just kind of drop the mic. Right. And I think- the other thing was and this is why I didn't watch The Watchmen right away is I'm just not a comic book guy. Uh I'm I'm just kind of out. I'm, I don't I, I I'm not into that whole universe Me and neither. I I kind of I kind of blame it for ruining movies in a lot of ways because it just seemed <laughs> like it was the cheap way to just get people to come to a theater. Yeah. And it feels like that show reinvented the genre to some degree in a way that now I'll be interested to see where it goes with comic book heroes and the kind of themes that they can really get into now, you know, and I think Joker did that too. The Todd Phillips movie was another one where it, maybe that's the
2: evolution of that genre, right? Yeah. I think that, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, I'm the same way. I, I didn't grow up reading a ton of comic books. I collected X-Men cards because my friends did, but I didn't, I didn't ever read X-Men. Um, and so, you know, I've read a, like a very small number of comic books. I read American Splendor, which isn't really like a superhero. I've read uh, Black Hole, which is another weird comic book. Um, and then I only read Watchmen after Damon first uh, emailed me and said he's thinking about doing the show and, and he asked me if I would be interested. And so I went out and bought Watchmen immediately and then read it pretty quickly and loved it. But it wasn't something that I grew up with as sort of obsessing over the way that Damon did. Damon read all those, Damon read all 12 issues of that comic when they came out with his dad. Um, so he was like super, super um, uh, steeped in it by the time by the time we got to it. So, but but I think that the thing that immediately I found compelling about it was that it was genre but it was a genre that, that felt really grounded. So it wasn't just like, you know, superheroes and yeah. um, like, like flying into space and, and battling aliens and stuff. You know, it, it, felt like, it felt like it was hyper-political. It felt like it was incredibly grounded in real-world issues and real-world themes. And it wasn't just, you know, Superman takes on the like Lex, Lex Luthor and then sort of like saves the day. It just felt much more grittier and, and interesting and complex than that.
0: So you wrote the sixth episode, which yeah. was kind of the famous episode for a lot of reasons. One, it's fantastic. Um, Thank you. It also does a tiny twist. I don't want to look. There might be some people listening. I don't know who haven't seen the show yet. You can get it on HBO Max. Statute of nine limitations. I feel
2: like statute of limitations at this point. It's okay. To yeah. Speak. Well, we'll get away <laughs> this one.
0: You, you make the decision, uh, you and Dave and everybody else, that you're going to reveal Hood of Justice. And- in 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 comic book circles this was a big deal yeah Yeah. this was uh going behind the curtain in a way that you guys especially if it doesn't work is an all-time backfire and people are just completely out on the show how scared were you of this might not work backlash
2: versus knowing that this was the right thing to do incredibly scared because i mean you know the Watchmen, the original text is so hugely beloved by comic book people and by Alan Moore fans, uh, rightly so. It's, it's, it's amazing. But, you know, to, to take it, so, so already it felt like dangerous waters to even try to, to take it on. But then to take this sort of central figure uh, of, this, of the Watchmen story and unmask him and say not only that we unmask him, but also say that his identity is that of a, of a black man, um, while, while everything in the book suggests that he is, um, he's white and perhaps this is German bodybuilder, uh, it sort of like flies in the face of a lot of, of a lot of tradition. And so, you know, that episode has a lot of big swings in it. I remember, I remember Damon, uh, when I said, when I sent him my draft, Damon said to me, he said, uh if this episode doesn't work, I think we're really screwed. <laughs> so it was, like, it was just right. like the, so much pressure on it from the beginning. And I was like, God damn, I, I, I mean, it's a heavy lift, but I think that if we can pull it off, it will be great. But um, it was, yeah, it was, a, it was a ton of big swings that I, 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 I think they worked out. I hope other people do as well when they watch it. Were you on Twitter that
0: night as it was happening, watching the reactions, or you don't you don't want to do that to yourself? No, man, I didn't
2: know. That's like down that path lies madness because I, I I was sort of the person I, I kind of would probably become addicted to that. So that the night that it aired, actually, I was in New York traveling for uh, for uh, Thanksgiving, and I um I made a friend go with me to dinner. We went and saw that David Byrne show on Broadway, and then we went to yeah. dinner, and there was no phones allowed, so we just we just didn't look at our phones for for like four or five hours while we just bounced around. And then I finally allowed myself to And look you're just at it.
0: wondering what you deep down you're just like, I wonder what they thought. Yeah, exactly. I wonder what's I, happening.
2: Exactly. But I just didn't want to be if I if I allowed myself to look at it, I would have just been glued to my phone freaking out. Well, you know, I
0: think for that show to really work and to resonate in a real way, especially when you're taking comic book material that everybody already feels like they know, you kind of have to take a swing like that. Like you could do it conventionally but then the series is just going to come and go right you have to take a couple giant swings and hope they work do you feel like damon was at you know he's the guy's had a lot of success do you think he's at that was at the point of his career where he's like if i'm doing this i'm fucking doing it i'm you know i'm
2: pulling yeah. it from
0: 25 i'm i'm just going for it
2: yeah absolutely i think that um you know i think that's the way that damon does everything to be honest but, but yeah. i think that i think that this in particular just felt like he, i know for a fact that he was incredibly terrified to do this to do this show just because he loved it so much so it's like taking this thing that you find really pure and that you love and 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 appreciate and on top of that it sort of like holds a lot of emotion for him with his dad because his dad is now passed and it's something that he and his dad fell in love with together and shared when, when they were when he was alive. So I think that Damon was was incredibly nervous about going into it. But I think that you're right. I think that at a certain point he said, um, if I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it. And I, I'm gonna take a lot of big swings. And if I fall flat on my face, then then so be it. But I might as well do this. And I think that something that you said earlier is correct, and that like we are now so inundated with superhero stuff. Like it's like so, like it just feels. So I, I agree with you. Sometimes it feels like superhero is just like the, the culture at this point. Like every movie is a superhero movie, every successful yeah. movie at least. Every TV show is a superhero TV show. And so, ha- so I think that distinguishing yourself from that pack is important and doing things that make it feel fresh and new and original is important. Otherwise, it's just going to get caught in the superhero noise.
0: And yet nobody will remake Plastic Man. It drives me crazy.
2: What? That was Lube, Lube
0: Man? Pl- Plastic Man. Who's Plastic Man? Yeah. See, nobody knows. It, when I was a kid, for two years there was I thought a cartoon you were making that up. No, there was a cartoon called Plastic Man, and he could just be like reach across the city and grab something, and it, it was great. I was really into him.
2: I've never heard of this. Hot, hot, it hot girlfriend. Like, by the way, it sounds like Plastic a man. bad, a bad super. Like if I had to have, if I had a superpower, and it was that I could reach far distances, it's you so just terrible. stretch. But That's he could wh- stretch it all these different ways
0: with the CGI. Now
2: <laughs> we could do it.
0: Wax superpower. Um, so you don't think there's any way season two happens?
2: I don't think so. Uh, yeah, in the conversations that I've had with Damon, he's been pretty, um, he's been pretty adamant about the fact that he doesn't want to do it anymore. I think that, like I said, I think that, you know, this was a. We started writing that show in September 2017. And we worked on that show for two years. You know I can't I mean? believe that. Yeah. Like that, that is, we, we worked on that How show. How many writers for a long in the time. writer's room? Um, there was, I think, about 10 of us off the top of my head, uh, nine to 10. Um, and so, but, but, you know, that, that was a, it was a huge labor of love for, for everybody that worked on it, just because it was, it was a little time consuming and it was, you know, emotional and there was a lot of sort of, There was a lot of emotional energy invested in it by everybody. So I think that, I think that Damon sort of is, is happy with what he did and and is happy with the story he told and and wants to move on now. Has he
0: moved on from the lunatics that love lost who are still mad about like seven different
2: things? I don't think think that's why he's still off Twitter. If I'm being honest, I I think, I think he's, I think he said openly, I I hope that I'm not betraying his confidence, but I think he said openly that that he got off Twitter because of, because of the response to lost. And so, uh, you, you know, I, I don't know that he's he's fully over it yet. I, I I can't speak to that though. It's so funny
0: the power that a TV show has over people for better and worse and the ownership that they feel over it after a while. Like yeah, it, TV- and I still remember even the shows that when I was growing up that I loved and you know they would end badly. They would always have
2: that one last bad season. It would just make me so mad. Yeah, well TV you know- is like it's because TV, you spend so much time with it. You know, a movie's over in in 90 minutes, two hours. TV, you know, if you're a show like Cheers, if you're a show like Lost, people have spent hundreds of hours of their life with these characters. And it's like, yeah. there's, somebody said something once that I, I think may be true also, which is that like TV is consumed. Well, basically everything is nowadays, but TV for a lo- for the longest time was was one of the few things that you consumed in your house. Like you literally brought these characters into your home with you all the time, week after week after week for years on end. And so people do start to feel like real emotions and ownership over these stories. And so I, I, I understand if people get pissed off. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think that you should harass a creator on Twitter if you're, if, you're mad about, <laughs> if you're mad about the ending to a show, but I understand where those emotions come from. I'm trying to think the maddest I've ever been at the end of a show.
0: It, it might've been the killing on AMC. I think that might've been the single baddest I've been.
2: I haven't seen that in so long.
0: It was 10 years ago. I just, I was really into it and the way it ended, I was so mad that I had spent a whole year wondering what the <laughs> killing was. And I was like, you motherfuckers. I was just so, <laughs> I was like, why don't go outside and start punching people?
2: Um, <laughs> the lamest ending. I, the, there's a, there's a thing that have you ever seen top of the lake that Elizabeth Moss? Yeah. Show? So, that I don't think the ending on that was bad, but but it 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 made the single I think the single weirdest choice for for any for any TV show I've ever watched in the in the last episode, which was Elizabeth Moss when she finally finds the rapist and is about like going into his house to to arrest him. Um, she goes in and and there's a there's a pill bottle on the on the counter in the rapist's house, and the pill the pill bottle is a piece of tape on it, and written in huge block letters, it just says roofies, <laughs> which is like, oh like, no! Like this, this horrible evil rapist that you've been looking for all season is like he—he—he's he, not even smart enough to not write roofies on his on his roofie. That, it's, that it's can't so be weird. true. Yeah, that, that's There's, a real go, thing that happened. Go look for it. Go look for it. It's it's one of the craziest decisions I've ever seen in a in a finale of a TV show. Oh my Wild. god! <laughs>
0: <laughs> let's uh, let's go backwards. All right, because now you're the guy that. Other people point to when they're like, well, Cord did it. Oh, I could be like Cord. Well, I don't know. Well, if that, just look at true? what happened with Cord. And <laughs> now there's all this pressure on you because you're one of the few people, not pressure on you, but I mean, just the the whole story of like, you go from the internet basically to writing for TV shows and now you're in a position where I'm sure you, I don't know what you have cooking, but I'm sure at some point you're going to unleash your own show. But you, you were in that whole gawker world for how many years?
2: I was there for two years, but before that I was writing for the internet for like years and years and years. So I i, I was a journalist altogether for about eight, eight, nine years. And so you were like early, blo- early
0: blogosphere.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I jumped around. I was doing a bunch of blogging from, I would say, gosh, 2007 to 2000, uh, 2006, maybe, to, to 2014 is when, I, wow. is, when I, is when I went to TV. So
0: Gawker, what were you doing there? I can't remember. I was, called,
2: was... I was a West Coast editor, but that just meant I was a writer who didn't want didn't to move to New York. So I just worked <laughs> in my apartment in L.A. That was all it meant. West Coast editor was just phony. It, was just, it just meant I, I, I didn't want to leave California. That
0: pace that all the Gawker writers were on did not seem sustainable. And I think they've they've been pretty open about it since.
2: No, it's, I mean, it was it was brutal. I mean, you started working at, as soon as you woke up and you looked at the internet and you stopped working 12 hours later, 12, 13 hours later. And then if you were off somewhere on a Saturday enjoying your life and something broke, you got back to your computer and tried to put up a post. It was... um You know, it was just breakneck and brutal. I I don't, but, and, and, you know, but, but I think that that's, I think that that's every job nowadays though. I think we're all working 24 hour days now. It sort of happened when we started putting little computers in our pockets and we're never away from email and and text messages and Slack and everything. So I think maybe it was just a precursor to all of that. I I feel like everybody works that hard now. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I do
0: wonder about that. I I do wish... I've had, I go in stretches where if I feel like I'm looking at my phone too much, I'll just start either taking stuff off it, just cutting. And I, I'm not a person who's on Twitter a lot, but I do, you know, with the way the news has been going, I do get my news a lot of times instantly from Twitter, Apple news, places like that. And you just get in this habit of, oh, what's going on? What's happening? And, and, and it, what's that? And this, this kind of half-assed curiosity that just dominates for. Ten to twelve hours of of the day, unless you're not looking at it. It's,
2: exactly. it's not a great way to live. I've 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 locked. I lock mine at, at at an hour. I give myself an hour a day, and and when I get to when I get to an hour on like Twitter oh, or it Instagram, locks on you. Yeah, like like it'll it'll it'll. I mean. I could, I could, I could bypass it if I want to, but after an hour, it just says like, you've utilized your hour for the day on these, on these Oh, uh, like apps. you're like parenting yourself. I like yeah, this. Exactly. This smart. I, that's, But I mean, it's pathetic. That's what I've, that's what I've had to resort to. I don't have self-control. What are you, now that we're like, I don't
0: know, seven, eight years at, out of like that end of that Gawker run. I mean, not just cause you left, but it's really seemed like it was like 07, uh, 13, something like that. So what? What's your perspective on it now, looking back? What are, like, do you have any regrets? Do you wish on the things internet had, or Gawker or what? Just, just everything. How do you, how do you see it now? Um,
2: I really, I really loved being a journalist. I think that I was, uh, I had, I had sort of, I, and I think that I utilize all those skills in what I do nowadays. I think that learning to write a lot, learning to write on deadline, learning to, um. Learning to analyze information and analyze news and learning to listen to people and learning to um, try to figure out um, the meaning behind what somebody might actually might be saying like the actual meaning behind what somebody is is trying uh, like the facade somebody's putting up yeah um, I think all of that is 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 helpful in writing in writing TV now so I think that it was a great crash course on how to be a writer i um I could never go back to that pace nowadays. I think it just took a lot out of me emotionally, and because uh, by the end too, I was just writing. I was writing a lot about race and politics in America, and if I was doing that right now, I just, I just feel like it's, you know, it's brutal, man. It just takes a lot out of you, particularly when the news is like this and this bad. Do you feel like there's a shelf life for that kind of pace,
0: a certain number of years to do that? Because it, it doesn't seem like it's that sustainable.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think that I think that if you I think that I mean there there was for me, there is for other people that I that I know who did that kind of work. I think that it's it becomes a thing where um where you sort of it just it just you you reach a breaking point eventually. I mean, I think that there's there's still people out there doing it who have been doing it for, you know, years and years and years now. I think that there's writers like Jelani Cobb and Nicole Hannah Jones and and these kinds of people who who have been doing this work their entire careers and who, who continue to do excellent work. So I'm not saying that it's, it's uh, it, it breaks everybody, but, but it certainly was, it, it, it hit a breaking point for me and I had to get out of there. So, so when I got, I got an offer. So another mutual friend of ours, Mike O'Malley is, is uh, O'Malley reached out to me in 2014 to come work on a TV show. And I kind of didn't know what to expect. It was only 13 weeks of work. But I took the job and, I, and I, I haven't really looked back since. I still do journalism from, from time to time when I, uh, when I have some, some room um, to do it. But uh, I, I sort of am, am focused mostly on TV and features now.
0: I remember in 2001, and I'd had my old site in Boston for a while, like four years. And I was just constant every day. No, no way out. Like there was only one way to do it. I'm trying to bring people to me. I'm not attached to anybody. And then when I got hired by ESPN, I remember I asked them for, um, I knew I was burned out and I asked them like, Hey, before I start, can I have five weeks off? And they're like, uh, well, we won't start the contract till that. I'm like, that's fine. Um, (laughs) and then they actually felt bad. They're like, ah, we'll start it early. That's good. Take the five (laughs) weeks. So I somehow Jed my I might trick them, but I remember I took, that first two weeks off in the habit of just feeling like oh almost like being a doctor, like you're going to the hospital, like I gotta go, I gotta put my and just not having that, and just being it was like having a tumor removed. Yeah. And it and it was like, wow, this is it's 9:30 on a Monday, and I'm just looking around and the sky's blue, and I'm like, oh my God, what did I just do to myself the last four years? So I I I get it. I do think you can hit a breaking point with that stuff. Yeah.
2: And even, and in 2001, when you were, when you were doing that, Twitter didn't exist. Instagram didn't exist. Like all these other, um, of information did not, did not exist. And now I just feel like, you know, you are just, you're like, you have every bit of information in the world coming at you all at once. And a lot of it is negative and you have criticism coming at you and you have awful, horrible news stories coming from around the world that affect you emotionally, like it's, it. you know, I'm not a doctor, but I just feel like it can't be healthy to just plug yourself into that all the time and like jack your brain into the internet constantly. So,
0: well, it's definitely not healthy, especially during the pandemic as everyone's yeah. just home driving themselves crazy in <laughs> exactly. the, in wherever they're living. <laughs> exactly. Um, you left out a crucial point of you had, you had a quote unquote break where you had that, uh, what was the name of the show where they invited you on to do the the thing this is oh, before called you.
2: Survivor's Remorse.
0: No, oh, but Oh, no, oh, that. no.
2: Oh, uh, Chris Hayes. Yeah, what was that story? I, I vaguely Hayes. remember it. All in with Chris Hayes. I did a, uh, I wrote this piece for Gawker, this satirical piece about, uh, there was a, a surf riot in Huntington Beach and all these white kids, surfers, like destroyed Huntington Beach and like we're were, were looting stores and getting in fist fights and like toppling porta potties and stuff and just running amok. And so I wrote this satirical piece for Gawker about the white culture of violence and like where are the white parents and there's like white kids are sort of like going crazy. Basically all the, all the stuff that people say about black people when, when sort of they, they do the same things. And so, um, and so that sort of did well on the site. And the next day, Chris Hayes reached out and asked if I would come do, come do a, a, a bit that was basically that on the, on the show. And that sort of, that is what you're right. That is what O'Malley saw. That caused him to reach out to me. He saw that appearance on Chris Hayes. That that like truly, that truly changed my life. And I almost didn't do it. It's so funny. Like I, 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 People always ask for
0: advice or like whatever, and it. I hate telling people. Like sometimes it's like something like that. It's just this one thing where the right person sees the right thing at the right time. I know that happened for me at ESPN. Like the right person saw the right column the right
2: day. But would it happen anyway? I don't know. Yeah, you gotta say. You just gotta say yes. That's like when you're starting out, say yes to stuff. You know, just just do it, even if it scares you, even if you've never done it before, because you have no idea who whose eyeballs are going to reach your work, and that's that sort of can be your your huge thing. It was for me. So you get survivor's remorse,
0: where I know LeBron wrote all the scripts,
2: right? He was in the writers' room constantly. yeah, he sort of was writing in the locker room a lot. We call <laughs> notes, calls, like from, handwritten from notes
0: and towels. Yeah.
2: <laughs> 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 no, he wasn't. We Lebron was at the premiere, but it was, but I, I didn't see him before that. But Maverick was in the room a few times. Uh, uh, Maverick would come by and sort of yeah, um, give us help with ideas and stories and stuff. Um, but that was it. Was short. It was thirteen weeks. Like I said, it was a it was an abbreviated season. It was six episodes, um, and then we were and then we were done. And that's why it was. That's why it felt like a huge, scary leap for me because it was only, it was less than four months of work and I had to quit my job to do it. And so there was no guarantee for another, for another season after that. There was no guarantee of getting another TV job after that. It was just kind of, I just had to jump and, and, and hope that I could swim. You
0: took the, you took
2: this big swing. Yeah. But the
0: big thing is you didn't you didn't have the wife and two kids being like, hey, where are we going? What's yeah. happening? Yeah, exactly. So the lesson exactly. is don't get married.
2: Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then what was next? Wilmore? Wilmore was after that, but Wilmore was like seven months later. I took it so so there was like seven months of just general meetings, going around town, pitching myself, um, trying to sort of dance for my dinner for executives. Didn't get hired, didn't oh, get Oh, so she did the LA hired. dance. Oh, you did yeah, the man. LA meeting dance. The couch, the couch and water bottle tour, the famous. Yeah, you can sort of go in and they offer you some water and then they tell you to sit on the couch and you tell them all about yourself. I did that for seven months without getting hired. And then I finally got an interview with Larry. He was still working on Blackish. He was shooting his last episode of Blackish. And so I met with him on the set and we chatted a little bit. And he hired me to come, so I, that was October, and I moved to i moved to I moved back to New York in December 2014 for that. Yeah.
0: I happen to know Larry Wilmore. He might have a podcast on the radio yeah, podcast. I know. Network. I know I know I know he's an awesome guy. La- what was he like back? as a boss, just out of curiosity?
1: Very, very,
2: very um. like incredibly interesting and mellow and thoughtful and smart everything you want out of a boss you know what I mean like he was he is a dude who um he is a dude who is incredibly curious and interested in everything and like willing to talk about everything I think that that's like I think that that some of that is a background in stand-up comedy you know I think that I think that a lot of comedians are uh, one of the one of the things that that makes a comedian good is is somebody who's just interested in everything and willing to yeah. have an opinion about everything that's what you just got to be able to talk and come up with ideas really quickly and generate stuff and so um that he was that he was that kind of guy but also you know very laid back and cool too like you never felt that that kind of that kind of job is incredibly nervous making sometimes because you have to do four shows a week and then on fridays you're planning the show for monday so on a show like good place you know we, we work for eight months on 14 episodes of television for uh 14 half hour episodes of television for a show like the nightly show you make 14 episodes of television in three weeks and so it's like you just have the turnover is crazy you're writing all all day and all night when you're done with the show, when you're when you're done taping the show at like 8 p.m. the night before, then you've got to immediately start working on the next day's show. Uh, the, the, the first meeting for which is like at 9 a.m. Sometimes, uh, so it is just like a breakneck pace, and it can be terrifying and a little frustrating, frustrating, and and um, feel like you don't have time to come up to breathe. But Larry never, Larry never made it feel that way. He never felt tense or nervous. You never sort of. He exuded calm when you were around him, which I think is incredibly important for somebody who's who's at the top of a show like that.
0: Yeah, I, I describe my experience with Kimmel is that obviously I'm very familiar with the four days a week, um, yes. holding on for dear life. Yes, it's like being a baseball player, where it's a, it's a 162 game season. Yeah. And it's like you could have the game where you're like, I was four for five with two homers. And then twelve <laughs> hours later you're playing again. And and the game before it just didn't matter at all. It's yeah. like, guess what? Today's a new day. And you could have the shittiest day possible and be like, oh my God, the world's ending. And then the next day be like, yep, another show. And I think we we had so many people on that show who just hadn't done a show like that. All of us, we were just the 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 way it would move day to day, week to week, the swings of it. You know, I think now it's like a, when when I'm sure that show now he's almost had it 20 years. I'm sure it's like a machine.
2: But oh, back yeah. then,
0: back, we if we had a bad show, I, I felt like the world was over. You know, it's like, oh, my God, I have to put my lease of my car online and try to, you know, and then <laughs> you have a good show. And it's like, this is good, man. We're here for 10 years. And, <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's it's really
2: there's nothing like it. This swings. It's terrifying, but also, you know, thrilling. I, but I also think that it's like a young person's work, like I could never go back to late night. I could never go back to, I could never go back to four shows a week. I think that, you know, the, I, in my mind, it's, you know, a show like John Oliver is consistently really good because John Oliver was like, Oh, instead of doing the daily show model of four shows a week, I'm going to do one show a week and we're going to have a season and it's not going to be 52 weeks a year. And we're going to sort of like really dig down, on issues and make something that's really, really good every episode. I think that that, um, if I were ever to go back to a show like that, I would want it to be like a John Oliver type thing as opposed to a doing it every night, just cause it's a grind, man. I think that, you know, that's it's no surprise that, that a lot of young people sort of populate those offices.
1: Yeah.
0: And then the good place happens. You get to work with Mike Sure, one of the all time good guys. Yes. I don't know if you know uh, this, well, I was, he likes I was baseball. On,
2: yes. Oh God, please. I do. I mean the, the, the only, the only time I've ever seen Mike sure like actually angry was a baseball. Uh, was we, it was, we had a, uh, we used to have a soundboard in the, we um, used to have a soundboard in the, in the Good Place Writer's Room where sort of, we clicked on different videos uh, that we would like, we would set up like, it's, it's incredibly complicated, but there was a bunch of, we would set up a bunch of different YouTube clips on the, on the uh, bookmarks bar. So you could just like, if somebody said something, you just click on a YouTube clip and it would like, Go to yeah. the directly to line that we wanted, and Mike had one. I don't know anything about baseball, but Mike had one that was like uh, a, a Boston Red Sox dude, like hitting a home run or something that he really loved to go go to. And somebody replaced it one time with a yank with a Yankees, like a walk off home run where they beat the Red Sox in like the playoffs, and it was literally like the old, it was an like, act of war. Yeah, it was it was. Truly, I believe Mike unplugged the computer and threw in the trash. Like he unplugged, <laughs> he unplugged the monitor and turned it off and put it in the garbage can. He was. So they mad. probably
0: did the Aaron Boone homer. That's what it was. That's what it was. That's what it was. The Aaron
2: Boone homer. Yes.
0: Yeah. He was. Yeah. That's great. that's an act of war. <laughs> that's an HR violation. Even though it's Mike's show, it's still an HR violation. It was amazing. <laughs> so, so you get the good place, and now you're like, oh, this is. I'm actually now. I have now I have a resume, things are gonna happen. Like that's probably when you start feeling safe, right?
2: Before I was on the good place, I did um, Master of None season two. And those oh, dudes yeah, yeah. those dudes are how so Alan and Aziz were super into they they had worked with Mike for years, obviously on Parks and Rec. And they were so um, they just spoke of him so effusively and glowingly. I was like, if I ever get an opportunity to work with Mike, I'm gonna do it. And so I worked on that until like August of 2016, and then in um, in November, December of 2016, I had an interview with Mike, and he hired me for Good Place season two. And I moved back to LA in January 2017 for that. I forgot you had a whole Alan Yang experience too. <laughs> Yang man, he's great. Do you ever see him not dressed up or no? No, he's always he's always in a at least a blazer. All yeah. like, it's not. I, I I rarely see him in a full suit, but he's always in at least a blazer. It makes me want to like. He's he's given me. Um, he's given me a little bit of shame and, and I feel like I want to start wearing a blazer places now too, but I don't know. If I, I want I to zoom been. him at some point
0: to see if the quarantine broke him and he's just wearing a t-shirt and jogging pants like everybody else <laughs> at
2: some point month four, it probably had to have happened. Right. I, I, I wouldn't, I mean, I, I will tell you this. I saw him, I saw a, a zoom that he did uh, probably two months ago with some people yeah, and he was in, still in a button-up shirt and drinking a glass of white wine from like a beautiful crystal. Uh, it's like a Burberry but, catalog. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you had you had that, then you had the good place, and then you start working on the
2: Watchmen too. Yep, went to Watchmen. I I went, I was uh, I was at the good place, and Mike introduced me to Damon because they were friends. Because when Mike. I think they might have been friends before this, but when Mike was writing Good Place, he went to Damon to ask about how to do like a cliffhanger show because Damon was super mm. famous for doing that from Lost and, and they started chatting. So um, Mike introduced me to Damon and Damon and I hit it off. And so I went to Watchmen in September 2017. We started writing. I mean, those are,
0: that's a great list of people to work with. I feel yeah. like you're
2: ready now. I feel like you're ready for your own show. I mean... You put in the time. From your lips, man, from your lips to God's ears. We'll see the, the, uh, I mean, I, I do know that those, those guys are like truly the best teachers that anybody could have. If you want to learn this business, I, I feel Give me like
0: two lessons.
2: Oh man, two lessons. Uh, I, I will say that like, I will say that, uh, a lesson from Mike that I learned that that I that I sort of take with me everywhere is just that Mike is is a normal human being, and that he yeah. is he. I think that there's something that I think I think it's for every industry, but but I but I'm talking about Hollywood here, so I'll I'll be Hollywood specific. I think that that in Hollywood there's this idea that genius needs to go hand in hand with being a being a jerk and being um, intolerant and being aggressive and angry and rude and it's just basically like the idea that you can be that that, that genius goes hand in hand with being an asshole and yeah. Mike I think is somebody who is incredibly talented incredibly gifted very successful very good at his job but at the end of the day he's just a normal dude and he wants to leave the office at like 6 30 and go coach his kids baseball league and like go to his kids baseball games like this idea that you need to be in the office until 2 a.m and screaming at assistants and throwing stuff in order to make a great show is just is just absolutely not true and 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 um uh sort of a failure of people's imagination. And I think that that's a good lesson. Yeah, it's great. I mean and it's 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 I only want to work with people like that. I think that it's it's made me realize that like you don't have to work for for jerks to make to make good work. Um and I think for Damon it was Damon really put his money where his mouth was when it came to diversity in a room and getting a diversity of voices and opinions. Yeah. Watchmen to me was... I think that some people will do lip serve, pay lip service to this idea and say like, okay, I'm going to hire like one black guy, but like not really listen to him and not necessarily pay attention to what he's saying. Or I'm going to hire one woman and talk over her a lot. But she's in the room, and like, that's all she needs, right, is just like the, the experience. But Damon Damon came into that show saying, like, I want to make a show about race in America. I'm going to hire a bunch of black people to work on this show. I'm going to actually value their opinions and listen to what they have to say and learn from them. I think that's, a, that's the thing, too, is that so many people in this industry, there's a lot of big egos in Hollywood. I don't have to tell you that. And so I think that a lot of people find it hard to leave their egos at the door and listen to listen to people who are working for them and people who are working with them. Um, I think that it's like you know, if it says showrunner as your title, I think that it's easy to just lean into that and say like, well, this is my show, and if you don't like it, hit the bricks. Um, but Damon didn't do that. He sort of really, truly wanted to make a diverse show and wanted to listen to people's opinions and value what they had to say. And I think that that to me is is crucial. And I think that even if you are, I've said this before, but even if you are I believe it's the morally right thing to do is to hire women and people of color and queer people and other minority groups. I think that that is morally the right thing to do because for so long, those voices have been marginalized and and shut out of these conversations. So, but even if, even if you don't believe that morally, even if you sort of want to ignore that, I think from a business perspective, it is smart business to hire marginalized voices. Because there's millions of people out there who have never seen their stories told in television and movies, and so I think that you know, when you see stuff like um, crazy rich Asians blow up, it's like people are desperate for that, man, like people are thirsty, and you can make a lot of money if you do that. So even if you're not coming at it from a moral place, you should at least come come at it from a, from a business perspective and understand that there's money to be made there at the very least. So um, well, do you think Hollywood has changed? their perspective on that because there's been
0: so much stuff that has had success, you know, the last three, four years.
2: I don't think so. I mean, I think that if you look, there's still, if you look at the, the vast majority of people working in entertainment are still white. I think the vast majority of executives, I think I saw something like the 96% of executives are still white people. Um, you get like, I think 65% of 65% of TV writers. I want to say maybe, maybe lower. I mean, I I don't trust me don't quote me on this stuff because because I don't know exactly for sure but I think 65% of TV showrunners are still white um I think that the it's still skews heavily male um so yeah I think it's getting better I'm 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 not a person who I I, I believe that America is getting better all the time I don't think I, I believe that America is incredibly imperfect and has a has a so much work to do but I'm also sort of I don't you know I don't fawn over like I haven't feel no nostalgia for like earlier America because it's even worse back then. So I think that people are are, are making incremental change and things are getting better, but I just think there's a lot more work to be done to actually get to a place where we need to be.
0: So what kind of show do you think you want to create? Like, would it be a half hour comedy? Would it be a drama? Would it be something that you could get in and out of in a year? Like, how much? I mean, without giving away what your ideas are, what what
2: is appealing to you? What's I mean, I. I want to, I don't mind drama or comedy. I don't, well, that's, I, I would never want to be, um, I would never want to do like a, like a slapsticky, um, just like straightforward sitcom. That's never, I, I sort of never, I don't see myself ever, ever, um, creating something like that. I think that there's a lot of show, like people's people's attention spans are, 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 um, corded in many ways nowadays. And so, I mean, I do it myself. How many, I think we all have TV shows where we sort of like look at Twitter while it's playing or like do laundry or or um, check email and stuff uh, that just play in the background. I think that for me, the stuff that I create and the stuff that I work on, I want to feel like it's not shows like that. It's not shows that people feel like they can scroll Twitter and um, click around the internet while you're watching them. I want, to, I want people to sort of actually be thinking about them. And I want them to be thoughtful and I want it to feel like it's asking important questions and and causing people to reassess things in their lives and, and and question their question their existence and question question the world and so um you know I think that that is if there's like a a thread that connects that connects the shows that I've worked on, um I think it's just that it's that the shows feel additive and they feel like they're uh, doing something interesting and and causing people to reflect and be thoughtful more than just you know, turn on and zone out. I'm not, I'm not against zoning out. I have shows that I turn on to watch to zone out and not think about after a long day, but um, it's not something that I really want to write.
0: Um, so you wouldn't do a sitcom
2: that has the
0: character's name in the title, but with an exclamation point after it.
2: <laughs> not me. Cord. Like
0: Gary. <laughs>
2: <laughs> not for me. Not for me. I'm, I'm, we, I, more power to people who do though, but it's just not for me.
0: Would you ever do a two-hour movie called Brunch with Ezra Edelman, where he just frowns at whoever the five people are and only ch- chimes in a couple I times and seems put out kill, the whole time?
2: I would kill for Brunch with Ezra Edelman. Truly, truly. <laughs> what was like, that movie? My Dinner, My Dinner with, with Andre? Andrei. I was just going to say, My Dinner with Andre, My Dinner with Ezra, My <laughs> Brunch with Ezra. Yes. You bring,
0: it's him eating with six people and he's just completely unimpressed the entire time. <laughs> but then you make him laugh twice and you feel like it was a complete win. Yeah.
2: I love I love Ezra's energy. It really every time that I've been at those brunches, it wakes me the hell up because I you never know. It's great. He I those are my favorite people.
0: Yeah. Because the energy they have, some people don't know how to prep, but to me, it's like that's those are the best. Because if yeah. you can make those people laugh, it's like winning the World Series. Exactly. And if you can get them, it's the it's that's that's where you want to be. Exactly. Um, I fully agree. What about a Tommy Alter show? Would that work or no?
2: Yeah. Are you kidding me? I'm, I'm surprised. I'm surprised Tommy hasn't gotten his own reality show yet. I mean, talk, talking about the most famous dude that people don't know anything about. <laughs> six
0: like, six feet away, a quarantine show, with, a social distancing <laughs> hang show with Tommy
2: Alter. <laughs> it would be amazing. Are you kidding me? It's like, yeah, he should. Yeah. I mean, th- Tommy is. You, nobody knows how old he is. Nobody, nobody knows. I feel like his, his Rolodex is crazy. Everybody knows who he is. Nobody really knows anything about him. He's a man of He's, I mean, he, he definitely deserves his own shot. He has a, he has a
0: long, a long plan that started, I would say about a year and a half ago when he started putting shirtless pictures of himself on his Instagram <laughs> feed, looking muscular. So I was like, all right, he's up to something. Now he's on the JJ pod. His profile is increasing. And I don't know where it leads, but could it's it so lead good. to him just walking around in a body cam, filming, filming everyone he interacts with 24 hours Switch a day? Streaming? I don't
2: know. Yes, it's possibly. Possible. <laughs> it's
0: possible. Well, think about him. Those are my two ideas. My dinner with Ezra and, and Tommy with an exclamation point. The half hour, half I would hour sick that. up. Um, all right. Good luck in quarantine. Keep going with that beard. It's Thank impressive. you so much.
2: I like yours, too.
0: Uh, yeah, I, I trim silver it. Though. Fox, I cheat a a silver Fox. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going Silver Foxy. Here. Yeah. Uh, good luck. Congrats on everything. Thank you, Bill. Talk soon. All right. Thanks to ZipRecruiter. Thanks to Whoop. Thanks to JJ Reddick. Don't forget about his podcast. He's been killing it over the uh, quarantine. Thanks to Corey Jefferson. If you want to catch up on The Watchmen, I believe HBO made the episodes free. So you can check that out over the weekend. Stay safe. Enjoy the weekend. We'll be back on with uh, Rossillo 2008. Redraftables. I did 2009 on Zach Lowe's podcast. By the way, if you want to hear that, that one's already up. We're going back now. We're gonna do it in 2008. So that's gonna be Sunday night. See then.